Good morning. Welcome to the 11 o'clock online service. And you will be going over to your campuses to hear your campus pastors preach. It's exciting. Whether you're connecting with South Community or whether you're connecting with Highway 33 Rutland, we know that today's service will encourage you and bless you. Well, let me recap. We've been on quite a journey through Colossians so far. We're coming to the end of chapter one and moving into chapter two. We've discussed great themes about the supremacy of Christ. Supremacy of Christ over creation. Christ, the head of all creation. Christ, the head of the church. And Christ coming in the power of reconciliation that brings man and God together. You remember that man and God are separated through the problem and the condition of sin. But Christ came to annihilate the power of sin and to bring reconciliation between God and man. Reconciliation even with creation. Reconciliation to the world. So welcome. Let me pray as we begin. But remember, you can receive our emails. You can fill it in our Connect card online. You can give online and you can be part of our community. We know that many are staying safe at home and we encourage that. But we also know that as you join our campuses, that you'll know that others are coming to gather together. And wherever you are in your journey, that's fantastic. We're just glad that you are part of Willow Park Church. And we are so grateful for that. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we gather together and thank you that we can know that we have a solid faith in you. Not only do we have a solid faith in you, and I pray for everybody online that their faith will be built up and their faith will be strengthened. But Father, I also pray that we will know the love of God consuming our hearts. Lord, we all need a fresh baptism of the love of God within our hearts. And I pray for that fresh baptism of your love. And thank you for the hope of the gospel. If we lack hope, I pray, Lord Jesus, that we will receive hope. Come, Lord, in power, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's go over and worship. Hi, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to Church Online. We're so glad that you joined us. I'm Curtis. This is my buddy Josh and Luke and Rachel. And we're here to lead you in some worship. And we're so grateful you're here. We're so thankful. I'd just like to open in a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this awesome time. Thank you that your spirit joins us all together. No matter where we are, we are gathered together in your name. Christ, you are above me. Christ, you are below me. You're to my right. You're to my left. You're in front of me and you're behind me. Christ, be all around me. As I rise, strength of God, go before, lift me up. As I wake, eyes of God, look upon 
be my sight as I wait heart of God satisfied and sustained as I hear voice of God lead me on be my guide be my guide above and below me before and behind me in every eye that sees me Christ be all around me above and below me before and behind me in every eye that sees me Christ be all around me as I go of God, my defense by my side, as I rest, breath of God, fall upon, bring me peace, bring me peace above and below me, before and behind me in every eye that sees me Christ be all around me above and below me before and behind me in every eye that sees me Christ be all around me Be all around me, yeah. Oh, 
Christ be all around me. As I rise, strength of God, go before, lift me up. As I wake, eyes of God, look upon, be my That lay between us How high the mountains I could not climb In desperation I turned to heaven And spoke your name Into the night Then through the darkness Your loving kindness Tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished, the end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to bear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken, I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own. Savior, I'm yours forever, Jesus Christ, my living hope. Hallelujah, praise the one who set me free, hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me. Your buried 
Messiah, 
ransom from heaven Jesus Messiah Lord of all All our hope is in you All our hope is in you for taking all of my sin, all of our sin to the cross. Thank you for that. Thank you for what you did with that and what you do with that. You give us freedom. You give us life. You give us hope. You give us this connection with the Father. You give us the church. You give us forgiveness. And you give us your righteousness, which we don't deserve, but thank you. Thank you for that. We'll take it. Bless us all. Bless the rest of this service. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Enjoy the rest of the service, folks. God bless you. Let's celebrate communion together. And as we celebrate, let me remind you some of the words from Colossians that we've been studying and reading. Verse 19 says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You notice that verse that it says making peace? Making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And that's what we have. We have peace with God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this bread that I hold. And thank you that we have peace with God. 
We remember the journey of the cross and the fact that you were broken for us. The body of Christ, broken for you, eat it in remembrance of him. Father, we thank you for the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the sacrificial process of the blood of animals could never atone for the sins of the world. But we thank you that the blood of Christ frees us, cleans us, redeems us. And that we are part of God's nation, called to bear God's name. Thank you, Lord, for this. In Jesus' name. Amen. The blood of Christ that takes away the sins of the world. Father, I pray for every need that is online at this moment. And I pray, Lord, that you will come and meet every need in your love and your power, I ask. Amen. Amen. Well, before we go over to our campuses, why don't you take a moment to watch all that is taking place in the Willow Park Church Network. Hey everyone, my name is Jenny. And I'm Nick. We are the associate pastors here at Willow Park Church's mission location. And in case you're wondering, yes, we're married. Yeah. And here's your family news for this week. Hey Nick, are you busy on October 31st? Of course I am. And in case you forgot, so are you. We're running a trunk or treat event here at the South. I am really excited for this, if you haven't figured that out already. But you know, we can't run this event on our own. We really need everyone's help for it to happen. First of all, we still need lots of candy. There is no enough candy. So please, can you uh, drop off candy at the church? You can come on a Wednesday night. There's lots happening around here. Or um, if you have to send it to Rutland, you can let them know which campus or bring it on a Sunday. Um, we're also looking for volunteers to decorate cars, dress up, hand out candy, and you can sign up for this on our website. It's going to be so fun. And another amazing thing coming up at Willow Park Church on November 5th and 6th is the Set Free Retreat. This retreat is for anyone wanting to see a breakthrough and freedom in an area in their life that's been a struggle. Through teaching and listening prayer, we hope that you will have a powerful encounter with Jesus and break free from the patterns that have held you back from living life to the fullest. Honestly, if you haven't attended Set Free before, or it's been a long time, we encourage you to sign up and bring a friend with you. Registration is now open on our website. Set Free sounds pretty great. I think we should go, Nick. Yeah, totally. 
You know, we are some of the newest people on staff here at church, and it's exciting to see what God is doing here and to be a part of this team. And actually, Willow Park Church is hoping to hire three new people this month. We're looking for a part-time office assistant, a part-time custodian, and a full-time tech director. So if you would like more information or know someone who may be interested in one of these opportunities, please visit our website. Yeah, we don't want to be the new kids on the block anymore, so come work with us. Anyways, that's all our family news this week. And just a reminder, please be sure to subscribe to our email updates as we'll be sending all the details to your inbox every Sunday morning after the service. Have a wonderful week. Amen. I'm going to invite Peter to come and read the word in just a second. And before we do that, I want to say hello to everybody joining us online. And uh, it's uh, a joy. You'd be surprised. I mean, we have, there's a lot of people here this morning, but there's a lot of people watching as well. And uh, so we're, we're very grateful for the way the Lord is moving. And you might have noticed QR codes right in front of you. Feel free to uh, play around. I'm, I mean, use those. Um, ways to give and connect and all sorts of different things. So you can do that. Um, a few weeks ago, we started standing for the Word of the Lord, and uh, just so those of you who are new and you, so you understand why we're doing it, um, we, uh, we really believe strongly that this is the Word of God, that is powerful, and it's God-breathed. Thank you, team. And, uh, and we submit ourselves to His Word, and so uh, this is a tradition that's been around for a long time, not necessarily within our church tradition. But it's a wonderful moment to be able to stand in honor of the Word of God. And they did this in the Old Testament. We stand for our national anthem. We stand to honor somebody when we want to give them a round of applause. And, and so standing is very much an honor thing. And, uh, and so we, we've said, you know what? Why don't we stand to hear the words? So I'm going to invite you to stand while Peter comes and reads. And then Nick is going to share the Word of God for us. Just about, just about chased him all the way around. <laughs> Thank you. As mentioned, my name is uh, Peter Jackson, and it's my honor, and actually it's I'm, my excitement to read the word of the Lord to you this morning. I'm going to be reading from the book of Colossians. I'm starting in chapter 1, verse 28, and I'll be going through to verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 5. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Thank you. That was the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Peter. 
Well, good morning. It's so nice to see you all here, and good morning to you, uh, to those of you who are online. We really appreciate you tuning in and getting your dose of God's Word in the morning here on Sunday. I know it can be challenging, especially when you're trying to stay in touch with the church, and online means are uh, good to some degree, but, you know, we always want more. Well, it's my privilege here today to bring you the message and the Word. Now, we just stood together to hear the Word of God, and it's an amazing and powerful tradition that's been done for countless years. Now, the funny thing, though, about tradition and symbols and meaning is that these things can change over time. Now, take jeans, for instance. Uh, A pair of jeans back before the 1950s was kind of a a low class. It was a working person's pair of pants. They weren't attractive or desirable. 1950s hits, James Dean comes on the scene and makes it cool. Youthful rebellion. And now we see here today very few rebellious people, all of you basically wearing jeans, if I'm not correct. But um, yeah, jeans have changed over time. Well, that kind of thing is kind of true for standing as well. Now, in, in our age, we stand to honor things. And in the Old Testament, they stood to honor things. And when we stand, that is, you know, a way of showing that you respect something, right? Oops, I went too far there. Oh, no, I'm going way too far. This is the problem with um, getting used to clickers. Now, in the scene here, we see a family. They're all sitting together. They're dining at a table, and you see in the background people standing. In this case, standing here represents being a servant. You're here to be at the beck and call of someone else. Now, in the ancient world, in the Greek world, and in the time of the Bible, Standing was actually a sign, not of your position as a servant or one to serve, but your position in the family. It symbolized that you had a place. So, it was hard to find a good picture, but here we have an example. You have somebody who's coming to meet the patriarch of the family, and standing beside the patriarch is either a daughter or a wife, You stood in the presence because you had a place. You were in a place of honor. So the fun addition to the symbol that we add to our standing for the reading is it's not only us honoring God, but it's recognizing our position and place because of what God has done. God puts you in a place of honor, that you stand because you are important. Now, what we do here is to honor God, but never forget then that the most significant thing that happens here is that God is raising you up. As Glenn said, when you come here, you come to center yourself. The beautiful process that happens isn't just that you sort yourself out, but it's that God reminds you of your honor and place that you are somebody who's been elevated. You're not a slave. You're not a servant. You're not a guest. You are a child. You're one who has the place and honor to stand before God. Wow. 
It's no wonder then that family is a macro theme in the Bible. A macro theme, as Glenn said last week, is one that covers basically the entire scripture. It happens over and over and over again. It's such a large theme that whenever we read scripture, we kind of have to keep this in the, in the back of our heads. Now, in the Bible, family is a theme. In our own personal lives, family is a theme. Is a theme. It's a macro theme. It's one that constantly comes back in on our minds, constantly reminded of, of us. I'm guessing that today, on your way to church, you were probably thinking of a few things, but family was probably one of them. Family is a theme in our own lives that comes up over and over and over again. And I think that's why Colossians is such an amazing letter, because the parental love and concern just oozes off the pages. Paul didn't even start this church, and yet you see that in this passage, we see him talking about how much he loves and cherishes this church, how much he wants good things for them. And he writes this because he wants desperately uh, for, he wants them, he wants what's best for them. Now, quick trigger warning. I just want what is best for you if you're a teenager or if you're a teenager at heart. You've heard this phrase before. Uh, it probably doesn't come with happy feelings. Because usually when somebody says, I just want what's best for you, it's because they're not happy with what you are doing. Now, that's not the case here in Colossae. This is not the case in this church. They are doing really well, and Paul is celebrating them. There are a few things, though, that are squeaky wheels in this community, and we'll get to those later on, uh, maybe probably in the few weeks to come. But just, just to say that this is a stereotypical way of thinking when you're a parent. It's the kind of thing that occupies your mind. You want what's best for your kids. You want what's best for them. And that's a pretty intense feeling. Paul, in the first chapter, spends so much of his time thanking and praying and telling that he's suffering and contending for this church. And all this language conveys these feelings of effort, struggle, pain, parent. When I was a kid, we would go down to the beach, live by the ocean, we would build sandcastles, and we would construct these massive sandcastles that had multiple moats, layers and layers of walls, towers galore. And we didn't just do this because it was fun to build things. We did this because we had a goal. We had the goal that we wanted to beat the tide. I had this beautiful image in my head that we could build a sandcastle so large, so strong, that it would withstand the incoming tide. And if you've lived by the ocean, you probably know how this ends. They never lasted. By the time the tide had reached just past the castle, it had almost been obliterated. And if you came back the next day, there was not a sign it had ever existed. Nothing came of the effort. We never succeeded in beating the tide. 
when Paul talks about the, the work and the force that's going on in his heart, it's so surprising, the twist that comes. Now, the language Paul uses conjures up this image of working against um, an unstoppable force, kind of equivalent to what the tide is. But the ironic side is, the twist is, is that Paul's not talking against working against the tide. He's not talking about working against this power. He's saying that this power is emerging from Christ, out from within him. He says, to this end, I strenuously contend with all energy. Christ is powerfully works in me. So much of our lives is spent looking at the world around us and feeling like it's too big. It's too powerful. Culture is inevitable. And that's not Paul's perspective. Paul's perspective here is Christ is so powerful, so active, so much energy that he is having a hard time even maybe uh, keeping up with what Christ is doing. The gospel is moving so powerfully, it's like the tide. So that image that I gave you of a sandcastle trying to withstand the tide, the tide's power is to take apart a sandcastle, to demolish it, But imagine that that power was actually taken and worked towards building a sandcastle. Imagine you took the tide. Imagine it had the power to build a sandcastle. It would be unstoppable. And that's what the gospel is. That's what Jesus is doing. Christianity, the faith, this gospel, this good news is an unstoppable tide That's why in verses 28 and 29, you kind of, if you're reading it quick, you might think, oh yeah, Paul's talking about this church. Uh, He wants them to be, you know, mature believers. He's actually talking about Gentiles. Paul's image here is, frankly, unrealistic. Paul is talking about that he's bringing the gospel to the Gentiles so he can present all of them as mature believers. All of them. That's us. That's Kelowna. When we talk about being called to Kelowna, a place that we want to share the gospel, to see lives transformed, if we took Paul's perspective and wording, we'd say that we want to present all of Kelowna as mature believers. And that's the power that Christ brings. That's the energy that Paul's tapping into that he sees at work in the world around him. It's powerful. Now, not only is, you know, the work and what Christ is doing is powerful, all the words that Paul is using are also quite pushy, quite powerful. You know, he's saying that he wants to proclaim, admonish, teach. These are all things that tend to not be very subtle. And proclaiming is kind of one of those words that's a little bit of an older word. We tend to not use it very much on day-to-day language. Uh, proclaiming comes with this idea that you're public, uh, publicly asserting with force. You're not just saying something observational like, oh, it's going to rain. You're saying, it's raining. You're pushing. You're declaring. 
you're saying something with force so that you're not only just giving information, but that you're actually building a reality. A reality that people will buy into, that will be convicted by, that they'll follow. So when you see somebody on the side of the road and they hold up a sign, the end is nigh, they're not just offering you a bit of information at your convenience. They're trying to convince you of something. Now, my kids are in soccer, and I just said that proclaiming isn't something we do very often. There is one place where we do like to proclaim a lot, and it's uh, in sports. Now, the, you know what the hardest part about coaching is? I coach my kids in soccer a fair amount over the years. Uh, it's not the kids. It's not bad behavior. It's not any of that. It's actually the parents. Every year, I have to sit the parents down before the season starts, and I have to explain to them what is helpful and what's not helpful. Now, I tell them, I want you to cheer your kids on. Yay! Go for it! Great job! You can do it! What parents love doing is proclaiming. Kick the ball! Pass! Go left! No! Further! Okay? Parents love proclaiming. It's that assertion, I know what's best, and you should do it. Now, as a Canadian, when we say that we want to proclaim the gospel, you know, the, little, the Canadian side of me goes, oh no. You know, that's not very polite. You know, really, I mean, yes, you can proclaim, but you've got to start it off with sorry, and then end it with, I'm terribly sorry, right? Like, you have to apologize. Get the nice prefaces of apologies. But, you know, man, that's the power of culture. Is it really does push onto you and makes you feel certain ways. And it makes you feel like you can't do something. Paul, in this letter, is writing from jail. Now, when you went to jail, you didn't go there because you were guilty of something. You went to jail because they were going to get sort out what was wrong here. They were going to sentence you. So, like, when Paul is in jail, he might not even have had his sentence declared yet. So, showing any sign that you wanted to be on board with what Paul was doing was very risky. Because if he was declared as being an outlaw, as preaching untrue doctrine or anything like that, you've just attached yourself to this person, and now you're liable to getting included in that jail sentence. They'll come to your door, they'll pick you up, they'll throw you in jail. And jail was not, as Glenn had said last week, is not a good place to be. Nobody was taking care of you in jail. You actually needed people to come, throw you bread, give you water, get you new clothes, because no one in that jail was taking care of you. So it was really bad. The early church had so much to risk and to lose so I really want to encourage us that when we hear that timid voice in ourselves, remind yourself that the risk is not as big here. There is risk. We have to acknowledge that. We might lose a uh, face in front of somebody. We might lose a friendship. We could even lose family. But it's worth the struggle 
Because the goal of all of what Paul is doing, the proclaiming, the admonishing, the teaching, is to build maturity. Christianity isn't an unpointed philosophy. An unpointed philosophy is something like this. It goes, an unaimed arrow never misses. Ah, beautiful. You can't miss if you're not aiming at anything. You just go and you do what you do and you're fine. Okay? That's not Christianity. And when you start following Jesus, when you accept Jesus, you can't live your life like the unaimed arrow. You've got to go somewhere. You've got to move forward. Now, at my first job, I uh, worked with a finishing carpenter. It was a great job. He was an amazing boss. And uh, the good Canadian me said, I will make sure that I don't ever talk about my faith. I'll do as little as I possibly can to show that I'm a Christian. And I'll make sure that it never is a problem. That's kind of the philosophy I had getting out of high school. I just want to keep my head down and avoid. Not a very good strategy. I'm not recommending that. My boss was an amazing person. He took me out to lunch he looked me straight in the eye, and he said, you know, I'm not a Christian. He brought up the topic. He said, I'm not a Christian. And do you want to know why I'm not a Christian? And I was like, well, no, I don't, actually. <laughs> Trying to avoid this conversation. Uh, no, he did not listen to my eyes of shock. He looked at me, and he said, my brother and his wife are Christians, and they are the worst people I know. They're judgmental. They're hypocritical, and every time I'm around them, I feel bad about who I am and what I'm doing, and I don't want to feel bad, okay? That was an eye-opening experience for me, but you know what the lesson that I took out of that was that people actually really want to talk about this stuff. Here I am as somebody who's religious, that I considered myself a mature believer at the time, and he showed way more spiritual maturity by actually talking about and opening up and showing what he cares about. A lot of the time, we assume that this is the face we're going to get when we bring up our faith. It's a frowny face. It's a face that looks at you and you can sense the cringe. That they are not appealed, or don't find anything you're saying appealing. Okay, that's kind of what we assume that people are going to react with, but it's not true. And after that day with my boss, I made sure that I was going to try to show that I have faith, to share why I think it's good and beneficial and not just leads to bad religion, and to actually engage people on these topics because people really care about this stuff. My boss didn't bring up this topic of religion because he doesn't care about it and doesn't think anything about it. He actually thought a lot about what it means to uh, have faith, to be spiritual, to do all these things. And he wasn't going to fall in line with the uh, orthodoxy of Christianity. That's maybe, not, maybe asking a bit too much at that point. But he wants to talk about it. He wants to share what he thinks, what he cares about. And then the ironic twist of the story is that he actually wanted what was best for me. 
he looked at me and he said to himself, the interior battle of whether or not I should bring up something uncomfortable or not, and he said, I'm going to bring up something uncomfortable because I want what's best for you. Parental concern. Intense. Now, everyone out here has a past. Everyone out here has family issues. We all have spiritual baggage. And we need to make sure that we don't try to hide and avoid. And we need to remember that the people out there also have these things going on. We're called to go out to share the good news, to teach people, to admonish, to proclaim. That's why we're here. So the next time you go out, you're walking down the road, you're on the bus, you're at a restaurant, you see a face like this, don't assume that they don't want to talk about this. Assume that they do that they care about these topics, of what it means to be a good person, of what it means to be religious, of what it means to follow God. Assume that people want to engage this, and you're going to come at this with a very different perspective, and you're going to have a better experience when you actually talk about your own faith. Now, in the next section, Paul brings up kind of four things that he wants for the church these are things that he wants for the church back then, and he wants them for us today. He wants us to be encouraged, united, to have understanding, to be mature. These all sound amazing, don't they? And who wouldn't want these? Well, I'm sure, again, to bring up the, the feelings that you have as a child sometimes when your parent says, I just want the best for you. Sometimes when you hear these things, it turns to ash in your mouth. You take it as a code for the, uh, the displeasure of a parent. These things come with a burden to them. Parental love is complicated. It's intense. In the animal kingdom, most animal parents don't give two rips about their kids. Or if they kind of do, usually it's just until they're old enough to get out of the nest, and then they don't give two rips about their kids. Very few animals in the, kingdom, in the animal kingdom actually have parental family groups. Uh, an example of this would be whales, right? Whales stick to their pod, to their family for the most part, all their lives. And the reason why is pretty obvious why like most animals don't give a rip about their kids is it's way more efficient. It's way more practical. You have less pain, you have more uh, resources, and you have far more freedom if you don't care. The unaimed arrow never misses. But if you bring this sort of philosophy to your own kids, that's repugnant. 
It's even hard to say that up here. I was debating whether or not to say this or not before, because talking about not caring about kids is a reality in our world. There are people that don't care about their kids, and it is shocking. It's awful. It's painful. You see the damage it does. So when you hear this parental intensity that Paul brings in the Scripture, maybe when you hear parental intensity in your own life, remind yourself that it is actually a good thing, even if it is uncomfortable, even if it's hard to hear. Paul wants us to be encouraged, united, to have understanding, to be wise, to be mature, because that's what, it requ- what is required of us to have robust lives that can endure the tests and trials, and in this case, in this verse, the uh, clever arguments that people sometimes bring. There are things in your week that are going to be pulling you down that are hard, that are difficult, that take away from the joy and energy that you have. But the beautiful thing is that Paul doesn't leave us without help and resource. We have the ability to tap into this community, to come here every week, to come here during the week, to connect with each other, to share in our lives, to feel encouraged. But you have to believe it in order to do it. Here's a fun little fact. You cannot change your beliefs without first being convinced, okay? It's a very simple premise and argument, but you actually don't have the freedom that we sometimes feel like we do in culture. You know, in culture, it kind of feels like sometimes we get the message that you can just choose what you believe. You can't. You have to be convinced first. And to demonstrate this, we're going to do a little thought experiment. Now, up here is a phrase, you cannot imagine a world where you don't exist, okay? True or false? Think in your head. Oh, maybe, should I get you to raise your hands? So, you cannot imagine a world where you exist. If you think you can imagine that, raise your hand. Okay? For those of you uh, who think that's false, raise your hand. If you think, actually, no, you can't, can't imagine that. Good. Actually, we got a good mix. Good. So everybody who said uh, that this was false, everybody who thinks that they can imagine a world where they don't exist, you're wrong. Okay? Uh, Did that change your mind? Maybe it did. Maybe it was enough for me to just tell you you're wrong. But I can actually demonstrate and prove it. So we're going to do this together. Close your eyes, imagine this room right now, imagine all the people here, and imagine you didn't exist. You would see something like this, an empty seat, right? You've got this picture in your head, you're gone, you don't exist. Now ask yourself, who is observing this fact? Who's seeing that? It's you. You, no matter how hard you try, can't imagine a world where you don't exist. 
because you're always there to see it. Now, maybe that convinced you now. Maybe if we asked again, if you would raise your hand, maybe you buy into that. Maybe you don't. But the point is, beliefs can't just change on a whim. They need some sort of convincing, some impetus, some energy. Now, our world out here is also not going to change its mind. You can't just change the world's mind by saying, oh, you're wrong. Okay, change your mind, change your beliefs. It's not going to work. We actually have to do the work and energy of showing and demonstrating and trying to prove our case. And we can do this in a good way. We don't have to do it in a, a way that's too un-Canadian. <laughs> but um, when we talk about maturity and what it means to be mature, that that piece of maturity that Paul's talking about in this verse, about not being convinced by tricky arguments, it takes maturity to withstand these kinds of things. Because to go back to our example, even though you can't imagine a world where you don't exist, you still know that that's a possibility. You can know that there is a world in which you don't exist. So there's a difference there, right? You see the difference between knowing something, even though you can't prove it, and being able to do something, even though it's um, unattainable. So, I mean, that's a bit tricky. It's a bit convoluted. But the, the point is, is that when Paul's talking about maturity, he's connecting that with these kinds of firm beliefs. And this kind of stuff is what parents think about. Parents think about what their kids are going to face. How are they going to resist and grow in the challenges that come? And part of the call to being a pastor is that you as a pastor care about a church with parental concern. Now, I don't know all of you very well. I'm new here. And yet, I still feel that parental desire to see this church grow, to see this church mature, to be readied, encouraged, and united. Of the four kind of lists, uh, list words that Paul gives us, united, unity is the one that I want us to focus on. Because God has laid it on my heart that we are in a time of preparation and rebuilding as a church community. COVID has made it really difficult for us as a church to connect, to, to follow our spiritual practices, and to do the things that a family does. I think that during this time, we are, call, are being called by God to focus on what it means to be unified. So there's one thing that I want to ask you, and I'm coming at it with the ask of, I want what's best for you. We need to be meeting each other. We need to be talking to one another. Grab lunch. Go out for coffee. We need to be reading our Bibles and praying with one another. This week, I am asking you to deliberately, with effort and energy, 
pick people from our church here to spend time with in the week. It can be impromptu. It can be organized. If you want to connect in with a group here, you sit, let me know, and I'll do the work of trying to get you going into a group. But this is the challenge that I want for us as a church is to, be, uh, to meet, is to be unified. Because coming up ahead here is a lot of work that God has for us. God is driving our church. God is driving our community. And he is the one who is the endless tide in this case. But he's a builder, not a destroyer. So join in. Connect. Be part of this good work. Because the reward, the direction, is maturity. And maturity is such a good place to be. I'd like to invite the band up. And I ask you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Father, we thank you so much that you're a God that cares about us. You don't let this church just drift in the wind. You don't let our hearts just drift away. You're calling and moving us. I pray that we would listen to your voice, that we would tap into where you're going. And Lord, we pray, like with Paul, that we would be a church that desires to teach, to proclaim and admonish, to be a presence in our community so that we can present Kelowna as a place that is mature in you. Thank you, Father. Amen.